0: We're in the midst of our, our series on discipleship, and uh, we've considered several uh, aspects of discipleship. And uh, in this series, we, also are lo- so we were also looking at how marriage is a disciple- discipling relationship. And that's what we're doing right now. We saw that marriage is a relationship in which discipleship takes place. And we saw that the wife disciples the husband, and the husband disciples the wife, in our last two sessions, uh, two, two classes, two lessons on the series on discipleship, we examined how the wife disciples the husband. And as you remember, in order to do that, we first looked at the role of the wife in marriage, and then we looked at how the wife is a disciple of the husband, Today, we'll follow the same pattern with the husbands. Start looking at the world, the husband in marriage, and then look at how the husband is a discipler in the marriage relationship. And as you follow the pattern, then we're going to look at parenting as a discipling relationship before we start looking at one another's of discipleship in general in the church. So I would like for us to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, a very familiar passage It bears reading it. Again, Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. So, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says in Ephesians 5:22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Read this passage, and uh, we may think that the Holy Spirit is using marriage to illustrate Christ's relationship to the church as a side note. As you see that, if you read it, you see that Christ and the Church dominates the passage, but it is an illustration that the Holy Spirit used through Paul to describe how the marriage relationship works. And you might think maybe the Holy Spirit was trying to figure out how to illustrate marriage, and you're thinking, man, how am I going to do that? Oh, I know, I'm going to use the, the illustration of Christ and the Church, but it wasn't quite like that. Marriage from the very beginning from creation, was established in order to illustrate Christ's love for His church. I hope you understand that. It wasn't like Paul or the Holy Spirit all of a sudden created this new illustration, this new function of marriage to illustrate Christ in the church. From the very beginning, when when God, the Trinity, instituted marriage in the garden in Genesis 2, He did that with the purpose, one of the many purposes of marriage, was to illustrate how the Messiah that's going to be promised in chapter 3 of Genesis is going to love his church and how his church is going to submit to, to him. And that is why any distortion of marriage is so serious. Because from the very beginning it was intended to illustrate God and his church, Christ and his church. So usually, the distortion happens either by redefining marriage in an unbiblical way or by not practicing it according to the scriptures. So let's take a moment now and brainstorm what are ways in which marriage is distorted in, in our days, or in, in general even. Rick? Rick? Very few states do that anymore. Like state of Washington doesn't do common uh, law marriage anymore. I think even the world figured out that doesn't quite uh, work as well. What What are the ways? Is marriage distorted? The concept of marriage distorted. Same sex. Same sex marriage. All right. Yes, that's uh, defining marriage differently than what the Bible defines. What else? Divorce is another way that marriage is distorted, saying that this is a relationship that can be broken when, uh, when uh, God said that whatever He's brought together, let no man uh, uh, divide. Brandon? Open marriage. Open marriage, yes, multiple partners in a in marriage, like a faithfulness, so on. What, what else? Abuse. abuse, yes, abuse in marriage. Somebody said polygamy, yes, that's another. Um, but wait! Abraham had multiple wives, right? Well, Abraham was a uh, had a sinful heart as well, so that's not based on on, on Abraham's behavior there. Uh, what else? What other ways is marriage distorted? Adam lack of leadership, lack of so abdication by the husband. Yes. What else? Have you noticed with me that's much easier. To define to talk about to to say how marriage is distorted out there right we're not practicing gay marriage here we're not practicing i hope polygamy here we're not pro i practice open marriage so those those are the bad ones out there how's marriage distorted right here adam mentioned one like leadership what else Not 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 loving yes what else Yes, refusal to submit. What else? Isaiah. Idolatry and lifting up the spouse higher above. Spouse. Okay. Yes, idolatry and lifting up the spouse higher than God. Tammy. Rolls rehearsal. Yes. What else? Exalting the kids above the spouse. What else? Yes, Julius, I agree with that too. (laughs) Yes. Um, So so why am I pushing this? I think it's really easy to see how marriage is distorted by same-sex marriage, by divorce, by polygamy, by open relationships, by cohabitation. And yes, we need to stand strong against that. But often we forget that even in the midst of the Church of Jesus Christ, marriage can be distorted thus distorting the, relationship, uh, the picture of the relationship between Christ and His church by re- role reversal, by not fulfilling really the roles that God has given to us as husbands and wives in, in the Bible. So it's important that we realize that, that uh, we, it's not like we have it made. No, it's, it's the world, the bad, bad world out there that, that distorts marriage and the church of Jesus Christ is, is just great. And even in evangelicalism, which seems like these days everything can fall under the label evangelical because that's where the money is. You have egalitarian evangelicals that says that there is no role distinction in marriage. That, there's no, that the husband and wife don't complement each other. And there's no role distinction in the church either. So that, that is among people who claim to believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God. So you can see that in the church of Jesus Christ, you have distortions of marriage that end up also distorting people's view of Christ, the role of Christ, and also the role of the church. And that's why it's so important to first define what those things are, and then we can talk about how the husband and the wife disciple each other We already look at the, the wife. Now, I wanted today to take one step further back, and you might think, I know, in all your series, you just keep taking steps back instead of moving forward, but there is a purpose for this one today. I want to take a step back, and I wanted to remove the husband and the wife off the picture for a moment. And I want us to consider just the illustration of Christ and the church. Because if we see that, then, at least objectively and cognitively, we'll be able to understand the other roles and be able to see how we can disciple one another in in marriage. So I wanted to focus on what Paul says concerning Christ and the church in our passage that's interwoven with this teaching on the relationship between the husband and the wife. And Paul says several things about Christ and the church in this passage. Namely, he says, Christ is the head of the church. He says, Christ is the Savior of the body. Christ loved the church. Christ himself gave himself for the church. Christ nourishes the church. And Christ gave himself for the church. In the last one, he gave himself for the church in order to sanctify the church, in order to cleanse the church, in order to present her a glorious church to himself. And I want you to notice the, the tenses. I, I try to really represent the tenses, the verbal tenses that are in our passage. There are past tenses, he says that he gave, he loved, and there are present tenses. He, he nourishes, he cherishes, and he is the savior, and he is the head. So it's important for us to differentiate the tenses that are there in the passage. Okay, so we've pulled out all that, the things that our passage says concerning Christ's leadership to the church, and the church to Christ. Now let's kind of take each one of them. And look, some of them we're going to bunch together. But we're going to, to go through these and see what how Christ relates to his church. First, Christ is the head of the church. All right. Seems straightforward, right? Christ is the head of the church. Well, you know, theologians would be out of a job if they didn't debate everything. And books would not be sold if he didn't have... Is not as straightforward as it as should be. And people debate what the word head means. One thing they agree is that it doesn't mean this thing that's above our neck. Right? It's this. Christ being the head of the church does not mean literally that. Okay? But it could mean a couple things besides the thing that goes above our head when, in passages like this. One is it can mean the source of something. Like the head of a river, and there's a sense that that's true of Christ. Can can you think of a of passages that teaches that Christ is the source of all things, that all things come from Christ? Colossians one, all right, it's fifteen through eighteen, I think would be the ballpark. What else? John one, John fifteen, is that where right here? John fifteen is the the vine. Right. And then who's that John one? How would how that be, Mike? Yes. So the source, there's one super famous one that I'm thinking. <laughs> no. Huh? Hebrews one. Yes. Uh, I was thinking of Romans eleven thirty six. Yes, that's correct. That's Romans eleven thirty six. So need and I are on the same wavelength as far that, as that goes. So there is a sense in that that's true that uh, he is the source of all things, but the it, it, the other sense of the word head is the that uh, someone is the authoritative ruler, and this is really the the sense that Paul uses here in Ephesians chapter five that Christ is the ruler. The, 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 the rightful ruler over the church. That's what it means that Christ is the head of the church. How do we know that? Well, in chapter 1, Paul says this. In verses 22 and 23, Paul says, And he, the Father, put all things under his feet, that's the Son, and gave him to be head over all things of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So notice that putting all things under Christ's feet is parallel to being head over the church. Do you see that? That being head in chapter 1 is the same as having all things under your feet. What does it mean to have all things under your feet in the biblical literature? That subject, can Paul, the Manian, yes, all, all these have rulership, ruler, the idea of being a ruler associated. Can, is Paul referring to some well-known passage in the Old Testament? To say the Christ is fulfillment of some things that the Old Testament is talking about, Psalm one ten, where there the Father God promises to God, wow, look at that the Trinity in the Old Testament, the Father promises the Son that all his enemies will be put under his feet and he's going to rule over them, and that's the idea then of the head. That's the idea that Paul is talking about here when he says that Christ is the head of the church. So if that's what Paul means, that Christ is the authoritative ruler of the church, then the next question begins, the the, the, the next question becomes, what can Christ do as the head of the church? I hear all things, all things, it's part of the truth. All things according to His will, which is important to add, because He will not have the church sin. He will not rule in sin. He's not going to ask the church to do something that is sinful uh, there. So being the head of the church means that Jesus has the authority over her. Remember how, how He begins that passage that gives us the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to make disciples of all nations. How does that passage begin there in Matthew 28? All authority is to be given to me in heaven and in earth. So there's only these two realms, right? The spiritual realm and the physical realm. That Jesus, Everything else, Jesus doesn't have authority over. But in the, in the things you can't see, and in the things you can't see, Jesus has authority over. Which I hope you see that is in... Everything. So the mission of the church is based on the fact that Jesus himself, as the head of the church, has all the authority to command the church to do whatever is according to his holy will. And the Bible says that the government of God's people was placed upon the Messiah's shoulder. A Famous Christmas passage, right? Isaiah 9. And unto us a child is born unto us. A son is given. And how does the verse continue? The government shall be upon the yes, and the government shall be upon, a Government of what? The government of God's people. So here we have Christ as the governor, as the head of God's people. And because Jesus has been appointed head of the church, the church submits to him. And in verse 24, um, Paul says that. She doesn't do her own thing, that is the church. She only does what her head tells her to do. Now, what's the implication of that? The church only does what her head tells her to do. What's the implication of that? How do we figure that out? How, how do we listen to Christ? Is that by sitting on the lotus position and going, hmm, right, loudly? No, it's by looking at His Word. So the the church can only do what her head says. And her head speaks to her through his word. And you can see how there's great applications for worship on this, right? We gather together to worship the Trinity. We know the Trinity is through the Son. And the Son is the head of the church. And the Son tells us how... He, the Father, and the Spirit are to be worshipped. Therefore, we should not do anything in worship that the Son doesn't tell us to do in His Word. Are you with me? Any questions so far? So theologically, that's called, that last thing I said, it's called the regulative principle of worship. That means that worship, corporate worship, is regulated, regulative, by the word of God by Christ, who is the head of the church. Right? <clears throat> so the church doesn't do her own thing because Christ is the head. She only does what her head tells her to do. And since the church doesn't exist apart from her individual members, the obedience to the head filters down to the individual as well. Right? So the church, as an institution, obey Christ. But the church is made up of people as an organism. The church as an organism, as individuals, also obey Christ. Because if Christ is the head of the church, if Christ is the head of the whole, he's also the head of the parts. Does it make sense to all of you? All right. Also, saying that Christ is the head of the church is the same thing as saying that he is Lord. That, that's what that means, that he is Lord. There is no other head. There is no other head of the church of Jesus Christ. Our confession says, in chapter 25, was the chapter on the church, paragraph 6, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only head of the church, and the claim of any man to be the vicar of Christ and the head of the church is unscriptural, without warranting fact, and is a usurpation dishonoring to the Lord Jesus Christ. So... What, what is the confession addressing there, specific? Is there, is there a historical thing that the confession' is addressing when it says that there's no other head and they've so much claims to the vicar? Does, do you know what the word "vicar" means? Representative substitute? You know, uh, so on. Um, is there a historical thing that or particular context, what is it? Papacy. The papacy and) The papacy and the pope are gonna call the same thing. The papacy and the pope and Okay. And the Catholic Church will be the same thing as the papacy and the Pope. Let's try something else. What is the where are the divines physically when they're writing this thing? In England. And who's the head of the Church of England? The king. Yes, so they're putting they're not talking about something out there right when they write this they're actually putting their necks on the line when they're saying that no the king is not who he claims to be now granted the king is going to be dead here in a little bit once they write this but that's that's what they're they're saying there as well and as the head Jesus gives gifts to the church we see that in ephesians 4 and eleven and appoints a government to rule the church under him. So Jesus, as the head, not only um, equips his church, but he also instituted a government, and that government is a government by elders. And that's his desire. So when a church is not being governed by a plurality of elders, it is not following the head. And that's something that's important for us to notice, because Christ had the authority to institute a government, and instituted a government by elders. We see that in the book of Acts, you see that in the pastoral epistles, you see that in 1 Peter 5, where he talks about the elders ruling over the church and shepherding over the church as Christ had appointed them to do so. Any questions so far? As far as Christ being the head of the church. Okay. Now, I, 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 I know I said I was going to keep the husband out of it for right now, but we can start to see how important it is for the husband to be a godly head in the marriage. Because a husband, no matter what he's doing, he's saying, this is what Christ looks like. You and I as husbands, we don't get to turn off our Christ imaging device and on. Every time we do something, we're saying, Christ will do that too. Every time we are something, we're saying, Christ is that too. So we're always declaring something about Christ, either truth, a truth about Christ, or a lie about Christ. So we started seeing how important um, being Godly husband is. We're declaring something about our Savior, our head, every minute, every second of every day. No matter if we intend to do that or not. Next thing that Paul says that Christ is the savior of the body. And it's important for us to notice how important the church is to Paul, better yet, to Christ. Uh, The church is the body of Christ. That's how Christ speaks of it. To see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 14 and so on. And Paul directly says here in verse 30 that the church is the body of Christ, and Christ is the Savior of the body. And that's very important. That shows how important the church is to Christ. There. Um. It's interesting that, uh, to my knowledge, I'll just say that way. To my knowledge, there is no place in the Bible where singular pronouns are used to describe the for whom Christ died. It's it is, it is, it is plural. Christ died for you. Even that you there is usually. Plural to indicate that Christ died for the church. Christ died for you, single is theologically true, but is only true because he died for his church. That his bride, that is his bride, the church of Jesus Christ, he's the savior of the body. Je- Jesus is the only savior, and there is no salvation outside of the church. There's no such thing as being saved by Christ and being outside of uh, the church. Salvation ordinarily only exists inside of the church. Our confession says that in chapter, in chapter 25, paragraph 2. It says, The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion together with their children and in is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which... There is no ordinary possibility of salvation. So if you're truly saved, you are part of the visible church. And the visible church exists in its local representation. The visible church is not some ethereal, abstract thing out there. It exists in its local representation. In the New Testament, the visible church existed in the church of Ephesus, in the church of Colossae, in the church of Laodicea, in the church of Rome, in the, the, the five churches that's listed in First Peter. So it is unchristian to be part of the visible church but not be part of its local manifestation in the local church Right? that's the implication of what we're seeing here. Any questions before we continue? Carol? Does just going to church make you a part of the visible church or do you have to have membership? Okay, I will answer that question but I'll ask you how do you think I'm going to answer that question? No, you tell me first. I want to see how do you think you say that there needs to be membership. Correct. That's how I would say. And I think that's the teaching of 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 the of the scriptures. You see that very very clearly in the Abrahamic Covenant. So uh, the Abrahamic Covenant is considered by Reformed theologians as the beginning of the visible church. Now believers existed before that. And starting in Genesis 4, it says that people were calling on the name of Yahweh, which means they were worshipping. Lord, but it is in the Abrahamic covenant that there's structure given to the people of God. And Abraham is given a sacrament in circumcision. And then Abraham is told, you teach these things to your children, to the people in your house. And if, you, if they don't listen to you, cut them off. Historically, those are the three elements of, considered of a faithful church. The preaching of the word, teach these things I'm telling you to your people. Sacrament, circumcise every male, Discipline. If they don't listen to the preaching of the word, cut them off. And now it became very clear there are some people that were part of the church and some people, it didn't matter how much they yelled saying, yes, we're part of the church, we're part of the church. But if they're not circumcised and didn't listen to the preaching of the word of God, they're out. Okay? So there's a, an identifying piece, the people of God identified together by a formal event. We keep on moving that, right? We see that uh, that was true throughout the Old Testament. We see that Moses being um, almost killed because he didn't include his children. For you Baptists out there, Moses almost killed for not including his children in the visible church. So, no, no. So, just let the Holy Spirit convict you of this, of this truth. Uh, and then it keeps on coming, it comes to the New Testament, right? And here, P- Peter preaches his heart out. He says, the promises are to you and to your children. Referring back to the truths of the Old Testament. And then the people said, brother, man and brother, what must we do to be saved? And the order is important. Repent. That's what you, you're declared righteous before God because you praise your faith. Be baptized. And then Luke makes this comment. And on that day, following their baptism thousands were joined. were joined the church, were included in the church. It wasn't until they were formally identified with the local church that they were included. As Peter keeps on going, he kept to chapter 5 of Acts. This is all bonus, by the way. He uh, comes to Acts chapter 5, and you have uh, the episode of Ananias and Sapphire. Remember that? Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah. You know, they get caught up in the excitement. People are getting saved. They're growing the Lord. Fellowship sweet. They say, you know what, Peter? We're going to sell our possessions and we're going to give every last penny to the church. They sell some property they had for whatever reason, maybe brought more money than they were expecting. Maybe once they saw the hard cash in their hands, they said, oh, man, that's a lot of money. And they said, we're not going to, we don't want to give that to the whole thing to the church. But I have an idea, Sophia. Why don't we tell them that we're giving everything? So uh, Ananias comes first. He gives the money to Peter. Peter says, is this everything? Oh, yeah, So everything. Every last penny. But that's my paraphrase, by the way. And then Peter said, Ananias, wasn't the property yours? Yeah. Wasn't after you sold the money still yours? Couldn't you just have kept it for yourself? No problem. Why are you lying against the Holy Spirit? Ananias drops dead. They carry him out. What happens? Sapphira comes in. Same story. Sapphira drops dead. Carry out. And then I think it's about verse 20 of, the, of, of chapter 5 of Acts. It says that there was a great multitude with them every day at the temple listening to the... So the, here we have this all these people who are constantly with the church. They're listening to the apostles preach. they fellowship with them. But then Luke says, but they dared not joining them. So, th- being part of the church, being joined to the church, being joined to other believers, goes beyond just being together at the same time as they are. And it's interesting that the the word there uh, is the, the the word truly being joined is a word that in other places is used for uh, membership, being joined to a group, is meant to be glued together by way of a, of a formal process. <laughs> so, so that's to say. That being, being part of the church is that goes beyond just saying, "Hey, I'm a part of this church." There's a formal, so though the word membership is not found in the Bible, the concept is just all the way through, from beginning to end. We come to last one I'll mention: First Corinthians five. Remember the story of First Corinthians five? You have this guy who is having a sexual relationship with his father's wife, and we hope that was his stepmother because the way that Paul writes that says his father's wife. So he's having this this sexual relationship with her, and the church is saying, look how open-minded we are. We are all love. We are so, we all of grace. We even accept this guy who is living in this sinful relationship. But Paul says, are you crazy? Not even the world accepts this. Kick him out. Make him not part of you. Right? So here you have somebody who is going to become his inside is going to become outside, and it's nothing to do with geographical location. He's going to be declared to be no more part of that group. We learn in Second Corinthians two, yeah, Second Corinthians two, that that man. He didn't. He wasn't shunned and put out the of the church. He continued, and Paul says, "You've seen the testimony. He's repented. You know he's there." He says now. By a vote of the majority, the one who you kicked out by the vote of the majority accepts his repentance. So, 1 Corinthians 5, we have this guy who's in, and by an action of the body is declared to be out. It has nothing to do with where he is physically. In 2 Corinthians 2, you have them saying that they did that by the vote of the majority. Let me ask you this. What you need to know in order to... That's a math question. Sorry why do you need to know in order to know the majority? You need to know the total. You need to know which ones are part of the majority. And it's the majority. It's a specific thing that's given there. So it, it, throughout the Bible, you find this concept of membership that, that being part of the church goes beyond just saying, hey, I'm part of the church. I said that was the last thing. One last thing now, I promise, <laughs> on this. You can see I'm a little passionate about that. The entire scriptures speaks of a believer being subjection to authority. And part of, part of demonstrating that of, that subjection is submitting yourself officially, clearly, to the authority of the church. It's funny that we, we, oh, Romans 13, Romans 13, submit to the church. There's even a stronger warning, Hebrews 13, 17 that says that your soul is in eternal peril if you don't submit to the elders of your church. So that idea of submission to is signified by the concept of, of membership. <sighs> I need to catch my breath now for a second. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Next. Uh, Paul says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And this is where the tenses will become interest, uh, important. Have you ever noticed that Paul does, says that Christ loved the church? It's in the past tense. He loved the church. Now, that's not saying that he doesn't love her now, but in, in Ephesians 5, says he loved the church in the past. And the past tense seems to point to a loving action in the past. Paul seems to be thinking of a specific thing... That Jesus did in history that showed His love for the church. Do we do we have any guess what that might be? <laughs> you think uh, perhaps John 3.16 can help us figure that out? Remember? God so loved the church. And so that it doesn't mean intensity, it means t- kind. God in this manner loved the church. How? He gave His only begotten Son that whoever, whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting uh, life. And that's really what... Paul is referring to God loved the the world in this manner. He gave his most precious thing to be to the world, his unique Son. So the loving action in the past was his giving of himself for the church. That's how God. That's how Christ loved the church. Jesus loved the church by giving himself for her. That is in her place. Literally, is on behalf of the church. Now it is not that Jesus gave himself to the church, though he does do that. He gave himself in the place of the church. That's what it means when it says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. In the place of the church, his love for the church is demonstrated in his living a perfect life in her place and forbearing the wrath of God in her place. That's, what, that's the love that's demonstrated here. And that is the ultimate demonstration of love as Paul says in Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. <clears throat> and... Christ gave himself for the church in order to accomplish certain things. See that in verses 26 and 27 of Ephesians 5. He gave himself in order to sanctify and cleanse the church. And this is a reflection of the ceremonial law in the Old Testament. Um, things that are going to be used for the Lord had to be cleansed, had to be sanctified. Um, and there were the, the, most of that happened through the sprinkling either of water or of blood. On these things, and they were set apart. You see that in Exodus 24, when the entire nation is set apart for the use of God, when they say yes, we'll follow you, and Moses sprinkles them with the blood of animals there as well. And that's what Jesus does, did by giving himself for the church. Uh, Our translation there in verse 26 says that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word um, literally is that her, he might sanctify her having cleansed her. The cleansing already happened. And Jesus sanctified the church by cleansing her with the washing of water, as Paul says here. And this is a reference to, to baptism. Baptism is a ceremony that sets apart the church for the Lord. Remember when the temple utensil was cleansed by water, nothing really happened to it intrinsically. As a matter of fact, you looked at the spoon that was going to be used in the temple, that had been cleansed for the temple, he said, you know, it looks disgusting. Because all that they did is either pour some water on it or pour some blood. It didn't really clean as we think of it. You no know, putting it on the water, scrubbing it. That's what, there was, it was a ceremonial cleansing of, of that thing. And that's what happens to the church, to Jesus Christ. The waters of baptism signify this cleansing and the setting apart of the church might also be a reference to the Spirit baptism in Acts chapter two, where this new era of the church was set apart to serve Christ. Any questions before we continue? All right. So in order to present, he also gave herself for the for uh, in her place in order to present her as a glorious church to himself. Christ is playing the long-term game with the church. He, he gave himself so that he can present her to himself at his return, and she'll be glorious. One of the best things about officiating marriage, the weddings is to be next to the groom as he sees the bride Walking in, and she's looking her best. She's glorious, and his eyes are, are big, and yeah, and, and the, maybe tears are coming out. And you can see you now. Some I I to step close to, to him because uh, uh, you know his knees might get a little weak, and he might just drop. Uh, uh, you know that would be really embarrassing if he did that. <clears throat> Won't get that. <laughs> um, that's that's what Christ is. That's how Christ looks at the church. Christ looks at the church with those eyes. No, really, get that so that gets the top up. Uh, he looks at her and is preparing her to be this glorious bride at his coming. And look at how Paul defines the word glorious. Glorious is defined negatively as no spot, no wrinkle, or anything the like. And defined positively as holy and blameless. Notice that in the definition of glorious, as far as the church goes, it doesn't include size. It doesn't include relevance in culture and society. It doesn't include how many people the church has reached. Includes one thing and one thing only in the description of glorious. What is that? One thing and one thing only: holiness. That's it. Holiness, which is, implies faithfulness, as well. That's a glorious church inside of Christ. It's a holy church. If you want to see, if you want to read about a little more of that wedding ceremony, go to Revelation nineteen six to nine, where we find the wedding feast of the Lamb, where that glorious church is finally received by the Lord. Um, just to finish up the current ministry of the church is described as nourishing and cherishing so Christ is nourishing and cherishing the church nourishing giving everything she needs to grow cherishing takes takes care of the church protects her um, intercedes for for her and that's what Christ does for his church any last questions before we close alright let's pray then Father in heaven, thank you for Christ. Thank you for his ministry to his church, us. Father, we pray that you would help us as husbands to understand the dignity, the importance, the privilege and the burden, the duties and the glory of being a husband who is a godly husband, that reflects truthfully Christ to the wife and to the family. Help us to be Christ-like disciples of our wives as we seek to serve you. For asking Jesus' name, amen.